this thing she would want to do, and I would always scream, and I didn't want to do it, and it was she wanted to take me to the deep end, right? And, and we called it the dip. That's what I called it. So she had this little song, we're going to the dip, we're going to the dip, and she would kind of inch back more and more and more into the deep end, and I'd be crying and screaming, and I didn't want to go to the dip, right? The, the deep end of the pool, the, the part that there's a lot in there, and, and especially when you're young and uncomfortable, it's a little bit scary. Well, listen, here's the thing. We're going to the dip today. We're going to the deep end of the Bible today. We're going to the deep end of the Scriptures. We're going to the deep end of Romans uh, today. And so hopefully you can uh, kind of hang in there and, and go along with us. It's a deep end. There's a lot of mystery involved in this, uh, so much so that R.C. Sproul says this. He says, if you fully understand Romans 9 through 11, then you are prepared to join the Trinity. Okay? So if there's aspects of this that you don't fully get today, you're in great company because that's how everybody feels, uh, feels about this. The, the deep end in particular and the part that's hard, not as hard to understand as it is hard to accept, has to do with the issue of election. That's what Paul is going to address here today, is this issue of election, uh, issues related to predestination, those kinds of things. And, and as we'll see here in this passage, it's very clear what he's saying. Just a simple reading of it doesn't make you go, huh, I don't, I don't get his point. What's hard, though, is to accept that it's true. It, it, it's a little uncomfortable, and it's a little bit challenging. And so as we get into it, I want to give us some ground rules, really, for this week and next week, because this week is just part one, uh, next week is part two, and we'll continue on from, from verse 19 next week. But here's some ground rules for today, and for, particularly for this discussion in Romans 9 on election. Here's the first one. Let today begin the conversation, not end it. There will be some of you who, from your background, from the experiences you've had, from the things you've been taught, this will feel the opposite of what you feel like you've been taught and what you've heard. And, and, and let this begin that conversation. Let it begin you kind of exploring this. And, and as the Bereans did in Acts 17, investigating the Scripture to see if what I'm saying is right. It's not about what I'm saying. We want to see what does the scripture says. So that leads us really to the second ground rule is we're under the authority of God's word. God's word has the final say here. That's what we're about. We just want to understand what is God saying so that we can live in light of that. We don't have a Stepford God that we create in our own image that just says, yes, dear, yes, dear, to whatever we want. We serve a, a powerful and authoritative God. He's revealed himself in creation and in the scriptures, and we want to come under that and understand and uh, receive his word. Third ground rule. This today is not a systematic study of Reformed theology or the doctrines of grace or Calvinism or the other kinds of systematic studies related to election. That's not what today is. Today is a study of Romans 9. We're going into Romans 9. We're going to look at it verse by verse. We're going to just walk through it and go, what does this passage say? So, uh, just so you understand that. Fourth ground rule. There is, and I already said this, there is mystery to God. If anybody ever tries to tell you that they have God totally figured out and totally boxed in and totally understood, get away from them as fast as you can. Because that is not true. There is mystery to God. Uh, the, in, in Deuteronomy 29, it says that the secret things belong to the Lord. There are things about the world and about how God works and about 
about the universe that God's made that we just don't know about. They're secret things. They belong to him. Even if he told us, we probably wouldn't get it. And so just realize in this that there's mystery here into how all this works. Uh, Fifth ground rule, hang in there and do some work to understand. What we said last week is that this theology that we're looking at, what it's doing is it's trying to provide rebar for the foundation of your faith. You're going to stand on something when life gets tough. And particularly what you're going to stand on is, can I trust God? Is God powerful? Is God good? And this kind of a study is going to provide the strength of that foundation for you to stand on. So do some work. Hang in there. It might mean you need to study a little bit. It might mean you need to think hard. Uh, But I know you can do that. Hang in there. And then here's the last ground rule, is remember Paul's heart. Remember Paul's heart. We looked at this last week. Uh, So just by way of review, in case you weren't here, Paul said in chapter 9, verse 2, that he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart, for he could wish that he himself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of the Israelites. He loved people so much that he was saying, I would go to hell for them if it were possible. But it's not possible and it's not needed because Christ on the cross experienced the hell of God's judgment against him. And we're now brought into him by faith. But that's Paul's heart. That's God's heart, as God says in other parts of the Scripture, that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, that he desires all men to be saved, that anyone who comes to him, he will not turn away. We affirm that. We absolutely believe that. And in this particular study of Romans 9, you've got to remember that. Don't forget that particular part. Now, the context here is Paul is really trying to answer an important theological problem. Right? There were all these incredible promises of Romans chapter 8. No condemnation. Everything working together for your good if you're in Christ. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Which might make you go, well, wait a minute, Paul. You're giving me all these great promises. But, but Israel, your chosen people, the people who you said you'd never let go, a lot of them aren't in Christ. Most of them have rejected the Messiah. Most of them have turned away. Most of them, if they died right now, they'd be cut off. Paul, how can we trust God? Hasn't God's promises, hasn't God's word failed? And Paul's decisive answer today is going to be no. God's word has not failed. He's going to give us some important reasons, okay? So here's kind of Paul's thesis, Paul's main argument uh, for Romans 9, this particular section, and really through a lot of Romans 9 through 11. Here's his thesis is that God's promises have not failed because true Israel is a spiritual people, not an ethnic people, who have been freed and unconditionally chosen by God to receive mercy. It's one sentence. The sentence is, God's promises to Israel have not failed because true Israel is a spiritual people, not an ethnic people, who have been freely and unconditionally chosen by God to receive mercy. That's his argument. We're going to see it here in this text. Before we get into it, let me just mention one more thing. Um, We understand that a number of you will maybe have questions about the things that are raised today. Um, And if you you have problems with it, if you're you're upset about it, please email me at matthewbrazelton (laughs) at redemptionaz.com. Okay? 
Um, no, but seriously, we want to create a, an opportunity for you to ask questions and dig into that stuff. And so our elders are going to be hosting a Q&A night uh, Tuesday, June 17th. That's a week from this coming Tuesday. So after you've heard this week and hopefully next week, if you still have questions and things you want to talk about, our elders will be there. They'll be happy to answer those questions and, and spend that time with you. It'll just be here in the lobby. Uh, we would love for you to join us uh, for that. All right, so we're going to dig into this. Before we do, let's pray. Father in heaven, there is mystery to you. You have made it where we can know you truly, but we can't know you fully. And yet, Father, in this passage, you've revealed some important and true things to us. Give us eyes to see them and faith to receive them and love to trust you with them. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first part of Paul's thesis is that God's word has not failed. No, 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 no. This idea that, that God can't be trusted, wrong, Paul says. He says this in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's his point. It, you can trust God's promises. You can trust that God will keep his people. Well, why? Well, because, point one, true Israel is a spiritual people, not an ethnic people. True Israel is a spiritual people, not an ethnic people. All right, look at what he says. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul's saying there is there's ethnic Israel, there's people who are uh, physically descendants of Abraham and thus Jews, and there is spiritual Israel. There is a true Israel, if you will. He says essentially the same thing in verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. N.T. Wright says this what counts is grace, not race. Right? The, the, the idea that, that someone would be automatically saved, automatically brought into relationship with God just because of their ethnicity is totally foreign to the Bible. It's foreign even to the book of Romans. Right In chapter 2, Paul said, hey, you're a Jew and you think you got it all wired, but you sin still and you'll be judged by the law. In chapter 4, he says it's not being a descendant of, of, of Abraham and, and being circumcised that makes you in relationship with God. It's having the faith of Abraham. So the idea that, that, that anyone who's Jewish is saved is never part of, of the Scripture. And, and if you kind of, you, you kind of go, well, not all Israel is Israel. What's he saying? Well, he, get this. You read surveys, right, that say 60%, 70%, 80% of America are Christian. Does anyone believe that 60 to 80% of America treasures Jesus above everything else? No. That would be a much smaller group of people, right? So there's, there's Christians, right? We're a maybe Christian or used to be Christian nation, but not all Christians are Christians. Not all Christians are born-again followers of Christ, right? Think about it this way. Some of you are Italian, and, and you kind of have that heritage or whatever, and some of you are Italian, right? Like, like my brother-in-law, he has a, a glass pitcher 
with water for every meal on the table. He is Italian, right? Like, and he will let you know. And, and it's not just rigatoni. It's rigatoni, right? And it's like easy, you know, lay off, buddy. But, but not, all, not all Italian people have the spirit of being Italian. That's what Paul's saying. The, the people of God have always been a spiritual people. There's a spiritual quality to them. And God creates that true Israel with miraculous power, not human effort. So look again at verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise that are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. Paul appropriately here starts this illustration with Abraham. Abraham's, yes, the father of the Jews. He's also the father of faith. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, uh, in the story of Abraham, God has promised that he's going to create a, a great nation through Abraham. The big problem with that is that Abraham has no children. His wife, Sarah, is barren. So how are we going to have all these descendants that turn into this great nation if we can't have one kid? And they're very old, and they're very advanced in age, and Abraham and Sarah are beginning to question God's faithfulness. Can we really trust this? And so Sarah comes to Abraham and has an idea. Why don't you sleep with my servant Hagar? Maybe we can figure out a way for you to have a descendant and for this promise to come true. What is that? That is a child of the flesh, human effort. Here's my plan. Here's how we'll figure this out. And God says, sure, we'll make a good nation out of Ishmael, the, the son of Hagar, but, but that's not my spiritual people. My spiritual people, as it says there in verse 8, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. For this, verse 9, is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. You get how, what God's saying? God's saying, listen, I make miracle children. I speak, and it happens. Lazarus, come forth. There is power in my word, and I create what I want. And, and so it's not the power of human ingenuity, and hey, let's figure this out, and, and let's figure out how can we get to God. It's God saying, I'm giving you life. I create this. God creates miracle Children. God creates true Israel with miraculous spiritual power, not with human effort. Paul's made that point through this whole book. It's like it's not the human effort of obeying the law. It's receiving what God has given you by faith. So God's promises to Israel have not failed because true Israel is a spiritual people, not ethnic. And secondly, this true spiritual Israel have been freely and unconditionally chosen by God. God's promises to Israel haven't failed. True Israel is a spiritual people who have been freely and unconditionally chosen by God. It says this in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older 
will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul had used Ishmael and Isaac, these two sons of Abraham, as his first example. The next example gets even more interesting. In the next example, he's using the example of of Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau. These are boys who were twins, born at the exact same time, and yet the promise of God continues through the people of Jacob. In fact, Jacob's name is later changed to Israel. Okay, so, so he, this, is a, this is an amazing example and really striking for a few different reasons. The first reason is that, that this is a good example is, is Paul is saying they had the same father. Right, do you see that in verse 10? And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, Our forefather Isaac. There's sameness here, right? Because someone might go, you know what? The reason that God had chosen Isaac over Ishmael was because Hagar was a servant woman and, 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 you know, she had some issues. So it was really because, because of his ancestry. Well, with Jacob and Esau, it's the same. They have the exact same father. They're conceived at the exact same moment. It is absolute sameness. Another reason this is a striking example is in verse 11. They were not yet born, had done nothing good or bad. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. So so Paul's going to say his promise continued to a spiritual Israel who was freely and unconditionally chosen by God in Jacob. And, And it's not because they had different parents. And they were born at the exact same time, right? It's not like, it's not like you know, one guy had lived a little bit longer and accumulated a lot of sin. We go, oh, we've got to throw him out. No, they, had, they had, were born at the exact same time. And before they had even been born, and before they had even done anything good or bad, God made this choice. The other reason this is interesting is because it defies kind of the human norms, right? The human norm was that the firstborn would receive all the... Uh, all the um, power, all the influence, uh, the majority of the inheritance, the, the younger would serve the older. And Esau, as these babies are born, is born first, and right after that, Jacob is born. And it says in verse 12, she was told the older will serve the younger. So, so the first illustration, Isaac and Ishmael, God says, I'm choosing Isaac because I make miracle children. Second example, Jacob and Esau, I choose Jacob. Even though they had the same father, even though they were not yet born, had not done anything good and bad, even though it defied the convention of that cultural time, why? Why? Why Jacob, not Esau? Well, he he says it here in verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that, that's the why, so that, in order that, why did this happen this way? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Why did God do it this way? So that his choice, his election would continue. Some translations say it would stand. And then Paul wants to make sure we get this, and so he says this in the rest of the verse. 
not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now that's interesting. Because a lot of places, if you've read Romans, if you've been tracking with this, oftentimes Paul will say, not according to works, but by faith. Right? That's often what he says. We can know God not by works, but by faith. But he doesn't say that here, does he? Instead, he says, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Why? Why does Paul say it that way? Paul is saying that that salvation is entirely from God. This is not the kind of thing where God looks down the corridors of time and sees the good or bad things you do, right? Because Jacob and Esau, they were not yet born. They had not done anything good or bad. And it's not even that God looks down the corridors of time and sees faith, right? That's why I think Paul says this differently. Instead of saying, not because of works, but by faith, he's saying, no, 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 you got to understand. It's not even that God envisions that someday you'll have faith. There is nothing in you. It is because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. This is why I say that God's choice is unconditional and free. It's unconditional. God is making this choice. God is choosing Isaac. God is choosing Jacob unconditionally, not because they've met any condition. This is his free choice. And and through this, he is creating faith. Here's what St. Augustine said. He said this, God does not choose us because we believe but that we may believe. It's not because we believe, it's so that we believe. And faith is incredibly important. We've seen that all through Romans, right? So, so if you're thinking this means, well, this just means you don't need to even believe, and if you're chosen, you're chosen. No, 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 no. He said through the whole book, you gotta trust Christ. And God's sovereign, electing, merciful choice creates the faith that allows you to trust Him. God's choice is unconditional, and free. See, it's not that God has no reasons. You know, well, why, why does God choose Jacob? Why does God choose us? It's not that he has no reasons. It's just that the reasons aren't in us. What are the reasons? I don't, I don't know. I'm not God, right? That's where the mystery comes in. The secret things belong to the Lord. It's according to his goodwill and his good pleasure. Now, here's the thing. That is so, I think, freeing to know that God is God and that God, therefore, can save anyone. Especially if you come from a place where you know the sin, you know the disobedience, you know the brokenness in your life. This means God can save you despite that. Right? Those of us who have a hard time with this are those of us mostly who think we're pretty good. We think we've earned it pretty well. We think if God were to look down the corridors of time, he'd see something pretty good in us. But for those of you who know you're broken by sin, this is unbelievably good news. I heard once of of some missionaries who were in Southeast Asia, and they were working among prostitutes. And they would share the gospel and share the gospel, say, come to Christ, he'll forgive you. Come to Christ, he'll cleanse you. Come to Christ, he'll make you new. And they would say, no, no way, no way could God forgive me. No way could God cleanse me from all the filth I've been involved in. No way could God make me new. And then the missionaries started telling them 
about God's unconditional election. It said, who are you to say that God hasn't, from eternity past, set his love on you? Who are you to say that you're outside of God's mercy? Who are you to say that God couldn't have chosen you? Trust him. They began to see it, and they began to come to Christ. Say, maybe if it's, if it's up to God, and it really has nothing to do with how bad I've been, then I'll trust him. That's incredible grace. It's incredible freedom. Then there's a difficult verse here in verse 13. Verse 13, it says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul here is quoting from Malachi. Esau I loved, or Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What about that? What do we do with that? There's a lot of different explanations that people uh, kind of offer in that. Some say, well, um, you know, he loved Jacob, and, and hate is just a way to say loved less. I don't find that a particularly satisfying explanation. Um, I, I think Doug Moo, he's a, one of the best commentators on the, the, the Greek text in this particular passage. Here's what he says. If God's love of Jacob consists in his choosing Jacob to be the seed who would inherit the blessings promised to Abraham. Do so you get that? In what sense did, did God love Jacob? Well, he chose him. That's the sense in which he loved him. Then God's hatred of Esau is best understood to refer to God's decision not to bestow this privilege on Esau. It might be best translated, reject. So you get it? He's saying the, the way in which God loved Jacob was by choosing him. The way in which God hated Esau was by rejecting him. He goes on to say, love and hate are not here then emotions that God feels, but actions that he carries out. Right, so some of you, heard, just right away, you, you read verse 13, you go, God doesn't hate people. You're right. You're absolutely right. The Scripture says he desires all men to be saved. The Scripture says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He doesn't have emotional hatred toward people, but he does choose some and reject others. Now, you will instantly have a feeling in you, if you're thinking about this, that goes, wait a minute. That doesn't feel fair. That's not fair. And, and, and listen, I'm not going to scold you for having that objection. Paul knew you would have that objection, which is why he essentially brings it up in verse 14. In verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Right? He, he knows exactly that this is how we're going to feel. He knows exactly that this is, oh, God chooses some, God rejects others. Before they had done anything good and bad, just because he wills, gosh, is that fair? So listen, this is why I say, if this is tough, that's okay, it's tough. Paul knew it would be tough. That's why he, answered, he brings up this question. But then his answer, which we've seen, this is now the seventh time he's given this answer to a question in Romans, uh, as we've studied it, is, by no means. May it never be. Absolutely not. The message paraphrase, Eugene Peterson says, not so fast, please. Wait, wait a minute, that's not fair. Not so fast. Not so fast. So Paul's going to explain uh, why that uh, thought that this isn't fair is not right. Now, you would expect maybe that Paul's going to go, hey, 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 
Not so fast. Yes, there's human decision involved. Yes, there's human responsibility to be taken. Yes. But instead, he doubles down. He's like all the chips into the table. Just in case you weren't sure what I was saying, let me say it again a different way. Here's what he says in verse 15. Before I read it, let me just tell you, um, the way Paul answers this question is he quotes an Old Testament verse, and then he says, so then, dot, 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 and then he quotes another Old Testament verse, and then he says, so then, dot, dot, dot. So he's kind of using this parallel thing to to make his point. This doesn't feel fair. Gosh. He says, by no means, not so fast. And he says this, verse 15. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul here is quoting from Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus chapter 33, Paul is, or Moses is with God, and he asks God to see God's glory. Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, this is God's response, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Isn't it interesting that when, Paul, when Moses asks to see God's glory, God shows him election. God, I want to see your glory. All right. I am free to have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It's a key part of God's glory. Paul makes this very clear, verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Right? He doubles down. I mean, he's he's making the point again. Verse 17. Quotes another Old Testament scripture. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 17, Paul quotes here from Exodus chapter 9. In Exodus 9 is a discussion about uh, God's sovereignty over Pharaoh. And, and, and you may have uh, you know, seen the movie The Ten Commandments or The Prince of Egypt or something like that. You might be familiar with this. But in case you're not, the people of Israel were enslaved in the nation of Egypt. And Moses was appointed to go to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh had a hard heart. He was hardened. And it's interesting, the word hardened in the Exodus narrative, chapters 4 to 14 of Exodus, that word hardened shows up 14 times. Seven of those times, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and seven of those times, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And here, Paul is saying that God raised Pharaoh up for this purpose, that yes, Pharaoh was going to have a hard heart. And Pharaoh was going to say no, and all these plagues were going to come, and it was going to end up working for the blessing of his people. In just the same way that the hardening of Israel right now is being a blessing to the nations, to the Gentiles. He'll deal with that in chapter 11. But he uses this example of of Pharaoh, and then he says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You know what verse 18 is saying? 
He's saying God is free to be God. He's free. He is God. He is not dictated to by anyone else. He is free to have mercy on whom he will have mercy, to harden whom he will harden. He's free to give mercy. But, but some of you are going, well, gosh, that's, this still just doesn't feel fair. Right? Pause and answer my question. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. Think about mercy. What is mercy by definition? By definition, it is you should be receiving punishment and you don't. You get mercy. Right? Mercy, by its definition, is never deserved. Right? You can't say, if someone says, well, God should show mercy to everybody, he owes it to them, then it's not mercy. That's self-contradictory. Mercy, by definition, means you don't deserve it. So listen, all of us are plunged into sin, the scripture says. All of us have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. At that point, then, what all of us deserve is God's wrath. So God has a choice, and he is absolutely free as God to do what he wills. That's Paul's point. And what are his choices? He could save everybody. He could save some people. He could save no one. And anyone who's saved, it would be by his mercy. So if you go, well, wait a minute, this election thing, it's not fair. Do you want fair? Fair is you're going to hell. And everybody you know going to hell. You don't want that. I'd imagine that there's a wealthy woman and she just wants to really kind of leave a lasting legacy. And so she creates this scholarship fund where she's going to give scholarships to 20 under-resourced uh, kids from an inner city school. She's going to fund their entire college education. Right, and all these different students go to that school, but she picks 20. Could the people who didn't get it go, that's not fair? No. She's wealthy. She wants to be generous. She can be generous to whom she wants to be generous. That's the nature of mercy. That's what's going on here. God is free to give mercy. And we're okay with that a little bit. But what, what really makes this passage sticky and, and especially hard to embrace is this idea that God is free to harden. To harden, right? You know, I, I like the mercy part, but, but verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That, that feels like doesn't it? it? It feels like it's saying that the reason that people are hard of heart is because of God, not because of them. That's what it feels like, which is why I think the Exodus story is so important. The Exodus story, again, Pharaoh is hardening his heart. God is hardening his heart as well. Here's what the word harden means. The word harden means to make spiritually insensitive. Right, that makes sense. You, you just, God is saying, let my people go. You go, no, I don't want to. I'm spiritually insensitive. I don't want to do that. But here's the thing, even in Exodus 9, Pharaoh is being punished, Exodus 9 is what Paul quotes, Pharaoh is being punished there for exalting himself, for his pride, for his arrogance, for his hardening himself against God. 
Here's, here's how I wrote this. God's hardening doesn't cause spiritual insensitivity, but maintains the spiritual insensitivity we already have. It's a lot like Romans 1, where it says God gave them over to what they wanted to do. God is free. God's promises to Israel have not failed because true Israel is a spiritual people, not ethnic, who have been freely and unconditionally chosen by God to receive mercy. So here's some closing thoughts for us. First one, if this is hard for you to embrace, that's okay. It is hard. Paul expects it to be hard. That's why he's asked that question. That's why the question we're going to pick up with next week in verse 19 is, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? All right, Paul knows that we're going to feel that way. Paul knows we're going to struggle with this. So if you feel that way, that is okay. Again, let this begin the conversation. But do some work. Study this. Look at it. Let's have some conversation. Come be part of that Q&A with the elders. We want to understand what God's Word says. So if it's hard for you, that's okay. Second thought, as we finish here, is this truth of election is not what it means to be saved. But by that, here's what I'm saying. You don't have to confess your belief in election to be saved. Amen? You are not saved on the basis of your embrace of the doctrine of election. And sometimes people who get this truth and love this truth will sort of, it will become like the new gospel that they want to convert everybody to. We want to convert people to the gospel, which is that if you confess your sin and trust in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That is the gospel. That is what you must embrace to be a Christian. So wrestle with this, struggle with this, do the work on this, but this is not the make or break thing that leaves you in or out of the kingdom of God. Here's the last thing. Some people will ask a question like, am I elect? How do I know if I'm elect? Am I chosen? Am I one of those? Wrong question. I appreciate that question. I understand that question, but don't ask that question. Ask this question instead. Will I believe? Will I believe? It's not am I elect, right? I somehow have to look behind the curtain and see if this. Will I believe? Will you trust Christ? Because Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And out of his heart will flow streams of living water. Jesus said, come to me. Will you believe? Will you trust him? Will you confess your sin? Will you confess that he is Lord? Will you surrender to him? And if God, in your heart, you're going, I want that. Yes, I want to trust Christ. I want to love God. Then believe. And and figure out the elect stuff later. It's not, am I elect? It's, will I believe? Will I surrender? Will I trust? We're going to continue to answer some of the objections and the questions and the things that Paul himself is going to bring up in this text. We'll do that next week. For now, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth that you have had mercy 
on your people. So we can trust that you'll keep your people secure because you have kept your people secure, your true spiritual Israel. God, thank you for mercy. God, if we did not have mercy, we would be completely deserving of your wrath and your judgment and hell. And so, Father, as we come to the table now and as we remember the body and blood of Jesus given for us, him experiencing the punishment and the wrath that we deserve so that we could receive mercy, God, would it fill our hearts with gratitude? Would it fill us with joy? Would it fill us with love for you? Would it fill us with faith and confidence that we can trust Christ and he won't turn us away? We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.